Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. We are staying in 1999 after the victory of Steffi Graf over Martina Hingis in that wonderful match that we covered yesterday on Roland Garros Relived. We're back again for the men's final, which took place a day later and featured the man that would end up being the husband of Steffi Graf, Andre Agassi, completing the career Grand Slam in a final against Andre Medvedev, which was a really interesting and... and, and Full of incident final in its own right, but really the story of Andre Agassi is just one that needs to be told. It is one we are going to tell for you today here on the Tennis Podcast. Catherine, you were 13 at the time, I think. 13, yes. Just getting into tennis on the precipice of getting really into tennis. But you only knew Andre Agassi as a shaven-headed man. Is that fair to say? No, I have I have a recollection of watching him win Wimbledon with my family. I I recall I recall that m- moment um being in the living room watching him win and sort of asking who he was and what was interesting about it and he had he had the hair then or, or rather he he didn't have the hair then. We now know more more wig chat later folks. If people are in this pod for the wig chat you won't be disappointed. No, I don't think you will. Uh, Matt, what did you know of Andre Agassi uh, before we started to properly relive him? I've, I, I guess you got the tail end of his career, did you? Yes, I think Agassi was actually the first tennis player I was aware of because I had a junior racket and Ag- it was a head racket and Agassi was on the cover of it. I think I thought his name was pretty cool. Um, and I certainly remember his his US Open final in 2005 and his obviously his epic against Baghdadis in 2006 those are my standout memories of his career but yes 1999 I was three so those memories are not there I'm afraid (laughs) (laughs) that will never not appall me uh, I don't think Um, so I mean Matt is the same age now as Andre (laughs) Medvedev was in that 1999 final and honestly if you stood them next to one another at those Which moments we could probably in time, do um, with the wonders of technology with the wonders of technology 
he looks like your dad, Matt. <laughs> and he looks younger well, now. He looks than he younger did now. Then. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's like Benjamin Button or something. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was an incredible year. Um, talking about first recollections of Andre Agassi. His, the start of his career started with my the beginning of my tennis interest because when we got our first satellite dish in 1990 was when he reached his first French Open final. But in the years that followed, and, and we end up getting to, to 1999, an awful lot had changed. Just in general, what was going on in the world? Well, I gave you some bits yesterday because obviously that was also 1999 but in addition to the euro and the other bits and pieces that i gave you i can tell you that the world's population surpassed six billion for the first time boris yeltsin resigned as the president of russia to be replaced by putin uh, there was a lot of fear over y2k and the millennium berg ever heard of that matt i have yes i've never really understood it <laughs> We were really scared about it at the time. Um, and I, 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 remember, I remember sort of looking at all the technology in the house at exactly 11.59pm and watching it flick over and thinking, oh, it's still working. That's such a 90s thing, isn't it? That we all got ourselves in a tears about that. We were, we, there was nothing to get ourselves in a, in a tears about. It was, it was a holiday from history, the 90s, wasn't it? That's not my line, by the way. People still get weirded out by you know still conspiracy theories about like 5g and all that kind of stuff that hasn't exactly gone mm. uh well I, i'll just finish my little 1999 it, the, uh it, sorry it wasn't a crackpot conspiracy theory though that's the thing everybody was paralyzed yeah, yeah. by fear about y2k yeah but more importantly spongebob squarepants <laughs> premiered <laughs> <laughs> so sorry you know. david you've been desperate to get that out and we've been banging it's on about y2k put it into perspective that's the important bit uh in the tennis world in terms of this particular contest in the final of 1999 on the men's side Andre Agassi was now 29 years of age nine years earlier as I mentioned he'd reached the final and was expected to win the title against Andres Gomez he didn't a year later he reached the final against Jim Currier and once again was the favorite lost in five sets in the years that followed, he never came close to winning the title. And despite having won Wimbledon in 1992, the US Open in 94, the Australian Open a year later, frankly, nobody thought that he was going to be a factor at the French Open ever again. I know I didn't. I mean, he got to 140 in the world two years before he actually won this title. And I mean... There was not a chance. I remember in 95 thinking he had a chance because he'd won the Australian Open and he looked the best player in the world. He was beating Pete Sampras with Sampras playing well. But the fact was, on the clay, he still didn't... He never looked like a natural player. He had to almost ignore the clay and just, just try and blast his way through it. But that makes his triumph in 99 all the more special. It was just incredible what he what he achieved. And yet his first Grand Slam final was on clay. That 1990 yeah. uh, final he played against Andres Gomez was was his first. Um and as you say he was he was expected to to win that one. That was probably the the one he was most heavily favored to win of the three. Um and he blames a wig wig related incident the the night before for his loss 
and we didn't know about the wig at the time. No. I mean, he he had this long hair. He was we- dressed in, I think, bright pink clothing, and he he was insistent that we that everybody had to call it lava uh, pink or something like that, um, rather than just pink. Um, and he says in, he, he says in his autobiography, it's not pink. It's technically hot lava. Hot lava. There we are. And uh, yeah, he and but the way he played the sport with the grand strokes he had, the flashy way. The, the funny thing is, he was so flashy back then. Whereas he became this ultimate percentage player. He still had big power, but he would just play the percentages. Back then, he would blast people off the court. And and what had happened against Gomez is, for some reason, he abandoned those aggressive tactics and just tried to outlast him, which was just nonsense. Well, he was even more nervous than than would have been normal or he would have expected to be because of this. I mean, I'm, we're obviously going to make light of it. Um, but, you know, he was he was crippled by anxiety about his wig situation, the fact that he was living this lie. And he says the, the night before the final, he says he was taking a shower um, and he used to shower in the wig, which is the most extraordinary wig-related fact. Yeah, I think it was because he was even fooling those around him. Anyway, he was showering in the wig and he said he felt it suddenly disintegrate in his hands. He thinks he used the wrong conditioner. Um, So he ended up having his his mate, Philly, who he summoned to his hotel room to to tell him about this wig crisis. Philly goes uh, on a, on a, on a, mission first of all around the hotel and then the whole of Paris to try and source some hair clips to fashion a sort of situation to keep this wig in place one of the people he asks for hair clips is Chris Everett and unfortunately she come comes up empty um he eventually fi- <laughs> he eventually finds somebody and they and they yeah they, this wig is being held to, together by a load of bobby pins during the match, and he says, warming up before the match, I pray, not for a win, but for my hairpiece to stay on. Under normal circumstances, playing in, in my first final of Islam, I'd be tense, but my tenuous hairpiece has me catatonic. <laughs> wow. So by this time, he is still not even playing Wimbledon. He, I remember watching this. as the first French Open I ever watched properly, and, uh, and I'd, I'd heard about Agassi because he was the bloke who just refused to come to Wimbledon because he didn't want to wear all white. And then we go to Wimbledon. Stefan Edberg wins it, beats Boris Becker in the final. No Andre Agassi there. A year later, he comes back to the French Open, gets all the way to the final and thrashes Pete Sampras, uh, I remember, and, and ends up playing Courier in the final. Courier then had not won a Grand Slam title himself either. So you've got these two Americans trying to do what Michael Chang had done a couple of years earlier. And Agassi goes two sets to one up, loads of rain in that match um, that interrupted the play. And Courier turned the tables and really did outlast Agassi. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it, it was a jolt because that's two Grand Slam finals he's not won there. He had the same at the US Open. Pete Sampras beat him and there were big question marks being asked. Yeah, he he says again in his autobiography, he says, I was so much better than Courier, so much more favoured by Nick, who Nick Boliteri, they'd both come through uh, his academy. And of course, Boliteri coached Agassi for a long time. 
Um, he said that losing to him in the final of Islam will feel like the hare losing to the tortoise. Bad enough that Chang has won a slam before me and Pete, but Courier too. I can't <laughs> let that happen. And he didn't have any say in that matter in the end because Courier did beat him a fair and square in the final. David, why did Agassi not play the Australian Open? You, you, you've talked about him not playing... Wimbledon because of the white was it just because it was too far at the start of the season I I think so it just didn't fit his agenda I mean if you go back into the 80s the Australian Open was very much the third wheel uh, or the the Mm. poor relation really of of the Grand Slams and a lot of players didn't didn't go down under and play it and it it eventually built and built and now it's seen on a par with the others Um, but Agassi didn't actually play the Australian Open until 1995 um, and he and he won it on his debut, yeah. Um, and if you go through the rest of his, I mean, look, when he won Wimbledon, he played his first Wimbledon in '91. Shortly after that Courier match, and he got to the quarterfinals, and and there was this big reveal because he he'd he'd said, "I'm playing Wimbledon for the first time since '87." Four year gap, and he came out into the court, and there was every single camera is on him because they still don't know whether he's going to abide by the all-white rule <laughs> uh, or, or as, as it was then, the predominantly white rule because you could actually wear quite a lot more coloured clothing than you can now, for instance. He comes out in a tracksuit, which was cr- just pristine white, um, and he takes it off, garment at a time, with a big smile on his face as, uh, and a, in a big sort of theatrical reveal. Uh, and laughing as he goes. And unlike all the other players who'd all got a little design on the front or a splash of colour, his was white head to toe, apart from the little black Nike sign. And um, and he he played really well. He got to the quarterfinals. Next year, he won the thing. And that moment and the, the the next couple of years that i mean that really defined him for a start he won he, that was his first grand slam tournament i think meeting brad gilbert and and when i mean he, he'd played gilbert when gilbert became his coach that changed things for andre agassi that that made him knuckle down and he had he, he dominated the sport really for a good 12 to 18 months and and was world number one and he had the most incredible 95 but then the wilderness years for him of of going down lost all his motivation went down uh to 140 in the world we know now that that he was he had that crystal meth issue and and there was the the cover-up and that he talks about in uh in in his book um so there was all that all that happened but then he arrives to 99 and he's he made a sort of gradual comeback because i i remember when i started in 98 on the atp circuit um he he was just starting to try to build his way back up he played those challenges at the end of 97 he was coming to tournaments in 98 his split with brook shields was happening around that time and he was having some results i mean in the in the autumn of 98 i went to two back-to-back tournaments with him in basel and uh an ostrava in the czech republic which you know back in the day if you consider he refused to play the australian open and wimbledon for years here he is playing ostrava this tiny little tournament in the czech republic in the middle of nowhere quite honestly and in basel he, he lost in five sets in the final to uh tim henman who played the best match i've ever seen him play um and then the next week we went on to Ostrava and I, I started to get to know Agassi a little bit around this period just because I was the only person there that 
that spoke English, quite honestly. He didn't have any of his team with him in uh, in Ostrava. He didn't have Brad Gilbert there. He didn't have Gil Reyes there or any of these people. And he won the tournament, but he was just still building. He still wasn't a threat when you got to the slams. He would still lose matches. I think he lost about fourth round or something like that at uh, the Australian Open in 99. Um, but as Brad Gilbert would tell us, um, in a phone call I had with him a few weeks ago, he said it was a challenge to even get Agassi to the French Open. I, I like to feel like 99 was the greatest coaching that I ever did just, just to get him to come there because his shoulder was hurting him in Rome. He, uh, he played one set maybe in Dusseldorf and then couldn't hold the racket. Was flying back home and he's like, Dude, pull me out into Washington. I mean, the shoulder's bad. I'm going to rest the French, Wimbledon, and come back to Washington. And I'm like, no. And like, I was like adamant, dude, we got to go back and just get some treatment for five days, you know, and see at the deadline if you're okay. And basically, we, you know, we did. We went to San Rafael. You know, he got treatment for like, so we left on a Sunday, got there Monday, got treatment through Friday, didn't hit a ball. And then he was so mad. I didn't, you know, it's like, I didn't pull him out. It was like, okay, let's fly over. And then we, we flew over like Saturday. And then he has like this brutal and get there. Like the day before Sunday, he, he's hit like maybe once in uh, like a week. And, Got to play Squillari. I asked for Tuesday start. Got to play Monday on center court against this RG who's rock solid. He's tough on the clay. So half match that somehow he got through, you know, you know, I was never thinking about winning the tournament, but I was just happy that he could got, got through it because he did look up to me in the stands at 6-3-3-1, break point down. And he goes, we came back for this shit. <laughs> that was against Squillari. And he's just getting, you know, roughed up by this guy. He's got a wicked lefty forehand and he's, you know, moving Andre left and right. And he, you know, he's a little bit off because he, you know, we haven't practiced and he's had this bad shoulder. But he dug in the trenches, won a tough, like, seven, five second set and the crowd really got behind him. Then it was an unbelievably physical, like, third set, seven, five. And this guy is like fit as a fiddle. Early in the fourth, dude was completely out of gas. And I was like, man, that, how did you do that? You, you haven't trained, you haven't hit a ball, we've been getting treatment, and then you made this guy who's physically a beast break. And then the second round was even crazier. You know, he was two points from losing the match, five, six, love 30 in the fourth against the uh, Clement, and the crowd was going nuts for Clement. When he got through that match, I, I just, you know, first of all, I couldn't believe that he had come back and dug his way out of those two matches. It wasn't like sometimes being great isn't about, you know, your best match. It's it's finding a way to win a match that, like, normally that, like, you just found your way out of the door. So, honestly, God, I wasn't thinking finish last. He had four matches in that tournament were at, you know, normally, especially on that surface, he'd have lost all four, you know, almost every time. That was the most amazing thing about that tournament, just how severely he, he dug in four different matches.
Well, what a story. We talk about sliding doors moments, crossroads in people's lives and careers. And Andre Agassi, there's so many times before the tournament, as Brad Gilbert's telling us there, and in the rounds that followed, when he might not have even ended up in the final, let alone won it. Just It's just the most brilliant story. And I remember feeling as it was going along, I remember every one of those matches, you kept on thinking... The, you didn't even. There was not even a suspicion that this could be a big run, let alone um, a title-winning run. Until he beat Moyer. When he beat Moyer in the fourth round from a set and a breakdown, that was the moment I remember. I thought, "Crikey, I did not see that coming. This is opening up." Because he did not have an easy draw at all, did he? Not, n- not by any means. I mean, he did. Yeah, he described it as a nightmare in the book. I mean, just uh, as as Brad Gilbert described there, just Franco Scolari in the opening round. I mean, that was about as, as difficult an unseeded opponent. I'm sure he was referred to as a dangerous floater in the draw at the time. He was sort of the... He was by me. The, the ultimate <laughs> dangerous floater. Um, and he only arrived in Paris on the Saturday, played his first match on the Monday, arrived in Paris on the Saturday, um, discovered in the locker room on, Mon- on the Monday before his first match that he forgot to pack his underwear <laughs> in his tennis bag. And this was, he says this this was five minutes before the match against Squillari. Why you're only discovering you have no underwear five minutes before a match is not something that's ever complained and raises an awful lot of questions. Uh, not something that's ever explained, rather. And it raises a lot of questions. But anyway, um, and then Brad Gilbert offers to lend him underwear um which which Agassi then refuses he says I will never want to win that badly <laughs> uh, because he lives in a universe where it's worse to borrow a friend's underwear than to wear no underwear which is definitely not the universe I live in but good luck to him um And uh, he says, then I think this is perfect. I don't want to be here anyway. I shouldn't be here. I'm playing the quintessential dirt rat in the first round on centre court. Why shouldn't I go commando? (laughs) (laughs) Which, again, is not necessarily, I don't think, the logic that would be crossing my mind in that moment. Um, But it worked for him. And he decided um, in the... uh, superstitious way that uh, athletes often do he decided that the logical conclusion of that was that he ought to play without underwear for the remainder of the tournament <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile Matt, um you've got andre medvedev who's 24 years of age he'd been a prodigious talent as a teenager reached the semi-finals of the french open in 1993 when he was 18 years of age but he'd been struggling a lot recently with with injury and I I think it's fair to say motivation. Yeah, Agassi himself had once called Medvedev one of the best young ones around and I found an article from the good sports writer Paul Hayward saying that he was the most promising young men's player in the game tipped as a possible future number one back in sort of 93, 94 when Medvedev was a teenager. Um, But yeah, just before the... Well, in the 1999 season, things are really, they've really gone south and he's in a bad place, Medvedev. And um, I actually spoke to him last year in in Paris because it was the 
twentieth anniversary of this um, of this match and run and story and Medvedev's obviously a big part of it. And he described a, a quite famous story about meeting Agassi in Monte Carlo in nineteen ninety nine, and the way Medvedev tells the story is that he never went to nightclubs but found himself in one in Monte Carlo having lost to Ivan Lubacic and he's had a really low ebb and he's he's honestly considering retiring and he has a chat with Agassi and Agassi basically talks him out of it. Uh, he's quite firm with him. He says, why the hell are you thinking of retiring at 24? Um, you've, got, you've got a future ahead of you and he gives him some advice to train less but harder. Um, and without water. Yes, train for an hour he without sa- any water. Yeah, he says full-on hour training, not even stopping to get water. Um, and he, uh, yeah, it, it was one. Of, it was again another one of the original, not one negative face moments. Indeed, because then, by the sound of it, Medvedev really picks up his form. He just about gets into the French Open. He's ranked. He's ranked a hundred in the world. He's on. He's on the cusp of missing out. But he gets in and he makes his way through the draw and he keeps seeing Agassi, he kept saying it, because they were playing on opposite days, on opposite sides of the draw, but they kept bumping into each other and he kept kept thinking that it was some kind of fate or destiny that he was going to meet Agassi in the final and that is obviously eventually what happened. Uh, and by this point, Medvedev has turned into the player that Agassi kind of knew he could be. He's kind of created this monster Um and he's and he's playing really well because obviously they have a good final. Yeah, they sure sure did have a good final. When Agassi tells that story, they were they were out for dinner, not in a nightclub. <laughs> it's been it's been censored by the Agassi camp. We've all done that. We've all slightly <laughs> just massaged the truth. Um, so there we are. We have Andre Agassi, who nobody thinks is going to get into the French Open final, up against Andre Medvedev, who nobody thinks is going to get into the French Open final. <laughs> and one of them is going to be lifting the trophy at the end. Brad Gilbert, by this time, his job is to prepare his man for one of the biggest nights of his life. And... Agassi struggled early on, and Brad Gilbert wasn't surprised because he'd seen him the night before. I sense he was edgy, you know, because, you know, it's, he just just seemed off a bit the night before. He seemed off to start the, the match, and it kept getting worse. And it was like one of those acts of God to have a minute and 30-second rain delay that, that somehow that we needed. What happened in that rain delay? got a chance to give a, you know, a pep talk, just a massively quick pep talk. And because he wasn't in there for more than 60 seconds and they were, you know, Medvedev and I think that everybody was kind of surprised that, you know, left the court, but it just had a quick little, you know, hard rain. They wanted him to wait on the umbrella and I'm quite like, come on, dude, I'm motioning him to go in the locker room, which he did. And then once he went in the locker room, I could give him, you know, quick little speech which was all it turned out to be, like 60 seconds. And what what was the content of that speech? Well the, well, the best part of it was, you know, just at the end, I don't ever get mad. He was sitting under, like, his locker, and the locker was open. And, you know, I just took the locker and swung it hard, and it, it like, snapped. It was, like, hanging on his hook, like, over his head. And I was like, dude, come out with your guns blazing like you've done the last 13 days, and you'll be fine. 
And he kind of looked at me, and the referee said, Andre, come to the court. And then he came to the court, and then the match, you know, it it, it turned. And it, it turned in one moment at four all in the third set. Andre served in 30-15. He's somehow, somehow managed to hold three times. He hasn't, from the one all, he hasn't broken all match. He's serving 30-15. He double doubles. Now he's facing break point, five points from being over. Misses his first serve. I'm thinking, oh shit, is it going to be three double faults in a row? And then he hits like the back of the baseline, comes in on the first ball out of nowhere, and then hits a genius volley off the line. Hold serve, and then he kind of sprints to his chair. And then the French crowd woke up, and he broke for the first time the next game. And that was it. Like the massive swing and momentum in the match just happened. And I was like, man. And then the magic that he had done three different times during the tournament, it was just about an hour and 30 minutes away from happening again. It was maybe the most pro crowd that I've ever seen for an American there or or anybody non-French. It was awesome. But it completely changed the rest of his career. Wow. Was he different after that? You say it changed his, the rest of his career. Was was he different? Was, yeah, but then all of a sudden he had, you know, refocused, you know, to like, okay, let's go get more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. 
Well, I'm very grateful for Brad Gilbert giving us a summation of the match because trying to find it in a feed on YouTube that we could actually watch proved pretty difficult. Uh, we I did manage we did manage to find a two hour forty five minute edit of it, but none of us could see the ball. Um, my, my my daughter actually caught me watching it, and she came up and she said uh, she's ten years old. She said, "Why does it look bit? Why does it look a bit blurry, Dad?" Is it because it's from a long time ago? <laughs> Which uh, isn't quite as it was, but uh, yeah, we we didn't have the best uh, viewing experience of the actual match. But I think between us, having seen highlight packages, having spoken to Brad, I've got my grainy memory from the 90s to, to, to fall back on as well. He was in massive trouble. He was 1-6-1-5 down against Andre Medvedev in the final in what may well have been his final chance to win this tournament. And uh, as Bad said, he he was then five points away when it was in the third set at four all and Um, 30-40. It's difficult to to get a real sense of of how and why it changed. What what did you guys think? Well, I mean, I I was watching that. I mean, I was mostly listening to to that to that video that we found because it was so completely unwatchable the only thing that was clear in in the uh, the footage that we found was that Andre Medvedev was uh, wearing the original uh, French Open plaid shorts Stan Wawrinka <laughs> stolen all the credit for being uh, Mr French Open plaid shorts but it was actually Andre Medvedev uh that started that trend um yeah so I was I was sort of watching that listening to it waiting for this rain delay that changed the whole momentum of the match. Um, And I'm not suggesting that rain delay wasn't important, but it wasn't quite as cause and effect as the telling of it now makes it sound. Because that rain delay uh, came early on in the second set. He'd lost the first set in 19 minutes, Agassi. I think he's a breakdown in the second when the rain comes early on in the second and he still loses that set very heavily. Um, and it's, it's not until the third set, I think he goes a break up, loses that break and it's four all in the third set that things start to, it feels like there's that huge momentum shift. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure the, the rain delay had, had a lot of input, but it wasn't quite as clear cut as that at the time. And actually um, Matt, when when you spoke to to Medvedev, he was very clear, wasn't he, that in his mind that rain delay was was n- not the reason why he lost that match. I realized it probably after five years uh, what mistake I made. After twenty twenty years, I can confirm that yes, it's this mistake. I wanted to make to win the match. You know, I felt that um, I make him lose. I'm playing to make him lose. I'm not playing as a player to win. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm there to to make him lose. And it's not pretty. I wanted to hit some winners. I wanted, you know, I wanted to go for the shot. It turned out that I went for the, for the shots. He won those points. He got the confidence back. He stole the third set, mm-hmm. which was the key point. And he got the confidence back. Then the wind calmed down. And even the, the, the tactic that I came back to to play smart already didn't work so much, you know. So then one break in each set, then uh, I let the match slip away. From, in my honest opinion, from from my own mistake, I I uh, went away from the winning tactic, even though it wasn't pretty. 
but I stepped away in in the favor of the show of, of something mm-hmm. you know something spectacular and I paid the huge huge price for this and now I see when the players are making the same mistakes I cannot even explain them how expensive it is you know to do this mistake you know you play winning man and you try something new like like you already won and you start losing the match you know I see it now in my students but the fact that the, the truth is uh, all the credit to the team of Andrea with Brad Gilbert and him and his physio and all the guys who helped him he won he won that match but in a way I can honestly say that I let him win this match not uh, from from anything but from my own mistakes tactical imagine that five years ago he finally figured it out why why it was he lost in his mind. I mean, I, I, I sensed as well, I th- Agassi really did start to wrench it from him because he was going for his strokes as well. And it wasn't like Medvedev choked. I didn't feel like there was any choking going on there. He didn't blow it in, in terms of his nerve completely going. But it, it shows the value of a five-set match to me, that he was two sets to love down, but it was far from over. And Agassi just had to find a way to win that third set and he was and then this feeling I remember watching it at the time and feeling that as soon as he'd won that third set that Agassi was going to win and there were some danger moments even then there were some really it wasn't straightforward it might look it on the scoreboard but there were some moments long juice games and and chances for Medvedev but it was just that wrestling of the initiative away and isn't it interesting that Medvedev remembers it in terms of him trying to play the perfect match too much and trying to provide a show for the fans and win it in a certain way. Oh, the the mental mind games that go on. Yeah, it's a really interesting take on the match. I'd never really heard anyone talk like that before. Because um, I think he, he recognises that Agassi is a better player than he is. But I think what what he thought he was doing in that match was not allowing Agassi to show to give the best of himself he was kind of slow balling him but also he was disrupting his rhythm with his big serve and then it was that change of tactics which then allowed Agassi to get more of a foothold in the match and he obviously he obviously pinpoints that as the reason um his 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 first line in his uh his speech after the, during the ceremony after the match which again he had to give after Agassi. Still at this point, the the winner is giving the the, the speech and accepting the trophy first. Um, his first line is such a wonderful speech. Um, is I lost to a great player today, and yeah. it's it's so heartfelt. And he gave all sorts of lovely quotes about Agassi after that match. He said, "I played." You know, I left my heart, my soul on that court, but you have to remember I'm up against Andre Agassi. And he said that this win for Agassi now means he has a claim as being actually better than Sampras, were his words at the time, because he's won all four. Okay, in the slam count, it was, this was only Agassi's fourth slam. Sampras had already won 11, I think, at this point. But because Agassi had got the French, that was such a big deal. He had he was just full of lovely words about Agassi, and I, he, my heart kind of breaks for him that he didn't end up winning the French Open, Medvedev. I hadn't realised that 
until last year when I was doing the research for that interview, he lost to the eventual champion at the French Open six times in the 90s. He lost to Bruguera when he won it, Courier, Quirton, Muster, and then Agassi. And so as much as Agassi maybe thought that it was a bad thing to have to play Medvedev because he sort of turned him into this great player again, well... I don't know, Medvedev was the guy who if you could beat him, you were going to win the French Open in the 90s. But he's kind of, he was kind of the test you had to pass. Um, and it, I have to say, he seemed quite at peace with it now, having not having a French Open. It, it, it isn't like McEnroe. He goes back to Roland Garros haunted by it. He's, he still stresses that Roland Garros is his absolute favourite slam. And he loves going back there. But uh, yeah, certainly one that got away on numerous occasions. Whereas Agassi says if he had lost that much, he would have been doomed to live with withering regret. There was a lot of emotion in that match <laughs> and in those post-match. I mean, the celebrations from Agassi at the end, they weren't full of joy. They were full of emotion and journey and mm. all those missed opportunities and and thinking that it was gone. And then suddenly, you can see it in his eyes, you know. And the, sometimes over the years with Agassi, I've tended to think things have been laid on a little bit with a trowel, a little bit more theatrically than maybe he's really feeling them. In certainly in his early days, and uh, I, I th- and on in that moment, it was raw, it was real. Every single emotion that he was feeling was clearly from his his deepest thoughts and and soul and uh and i i cried with him when 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 that was happening i remember being at the tournament at queens at the time watching on tv just uh, in a room on my own just sort of grabbing a few quiet minutes to just watch the end of this this match um and remembering all i'd seen all that 10 years worth of agassi going up and down and coming along and then disappearing and suddenly here he is and finding a way to 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 conquer the tennis world at at an age that people really didn't do at that at that time and it's a, it's a very valid point that that Matt quoted Medvedev saying there at the time in terms of his claim on being one of the greats because you know perhaps the currency now of being a career Grand Slam winner is slightly diminished just in, by the law of supply and demand. We now have three players, three active players that have achieved that. Well, Agassi was the first person to do it, first man to do it, sorry, since Rod Laver. Um, and it was Rod Laver that gave him the trophy. You know, it was a huge, huge deal. Um, and that that raw emotion afterwards it was actually that that was the genesis of the kisses to the four corners wasn't it he did yes, it just it, it wasn't premeditated he just did it in the moment and that became his his signature move in a in a career that as we've just heard Brad Gilbert describe you know was com- completely reinvigorated by that yeah, win. Yeah, he, he, he reached the final of Wimbledon a few weeks later. He lost to Sampras in Sampras's greatest performance, in his view. Um, and then Agassi won the US Open. Um, I think he... Didn't he win the Australian Open as well next? I can't... Yeah. I, can't I think he did. Um, it was just an, an immense period for Agassi. That was, and it all started with that win at the French. Uh, well, it, well, it actually... Well, yes. But there's a very important assist 
David, that we we haven't mentioned. Oh yeah, which I was hoping to surprise Matt with, um, <laughs> having re-dipped into uh, Andre Agassi's autobiography open this morning. But as soon as I saw what Matt was wearing for this uh, for this podcast, I I I knew. I knew that the, there was no surprising to be done. He's wearing a T-shirt. What, what's the significance? It's a Bruce T-shirt. Okay. And, so the, and the story is? The story is that Agassi, mid-tournament in Roland Garros, went to see Bruce and the E Street Band on their reunion tour in Paris. It was after you know, the... Bruce works, folks. <laughs> it was after the Moya win wasn't it? He, That's it was right. after his yeah. round of 16 win over Moyer. Um, he, he has to be, um, I don't know whether this uh, detracts from your feelings for Agassi, Matt, but he describes having to be slightly badgered into, to uh, taking up the free front row seats to see Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> um, but he does go, cause I think he had, he, he had two full days off after that round of 16 match before, before the quarterfinals, so uh, yeah, he 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 gets persuaded to go and see Bruce Springsteen, um, who was staying in the same hotel as him, incidentally. Um, and uh, yeah, he says, "Let's take a night off and go and see the boss." And uh, the passage in his autobiography goes, he says, I remember I enter the arena a few seconds before Bruce Springsteen comes on stage. No bothering with warm-up acts for Agassi. (laughs) Um, As we run down the aisle, several people spot me and point. A man yells my name, Andre, Ale, Andre. A few more men take up the cry. We slip into our seats. A spotlight scans the crowd and suddenly lands on us. Our faces appear on the giant video screen above the stage. The crowd roars. They begin to chant, Ale Agassi, Ale Agassi. Some 16,000 people, about the same number as the crowd at Roland Garros, are chanting, cheering and stomping their feet. I mean, it might have been for Bruce, mightn't it? But anyway, <laughs> Ale Agassi, it, it, has, it has a lilt the way they chant it, a bounce, bouncing rhythm like a children's nursery rhyme. It's contagious. Brad chants too. I stand, I wave, I'm honoured, I'm inspired. I I mean, it sounds a lot like he's stealing Bruce's thunder to me, but anyway, he stands, he waves, he's honoured, he's inspired. He says, I wish I could play the next match right now. I stand once more, my heart in my throat. Then at last, the boss comes on. Do you know what I'd have loved? I'd have loved the boss to turn up at... 5 4 in the fifth set. <laughs> and, <laughs> and just and stand, stand, up. stand and wave. Yeah. <laughs> and get the well, crowd <laughs> chanting his name. <laughs> Agassi actually gave a very um, Bruce esque quote after winning the final because he said, if I, if I hadn't have won today, it would have been devastating because it's so hard to come so close to your dreams and not get there, which is basically a line from the river. If, yeah. If, if a, is a dream a life it don't come true or is it something worse so oh. you know I, I i'm seeing all the bruce inspiration in in agassi's in agassi's I th- I think post-match Med- speech medvedev could write a song or two couldn't he the way he gave that speech at the end mm. and, the, and there was anka huber the former player in his oh. uh, player box and their love affair had just been reignited shortly before the tournament and he was saying how soon to be extinguished 
he felt like he could write poetry and, and just do anything <laughs> that week because he he was just inspired um and so so it proved almost he got to the final um, but as you say, uh, she's now with somebody else, and so is Andre. <laughs> yeah, Agassi got Agassi got the trophy and the girl. That's yeah. not fair, is it, for Medvedev? And would you believe? I, I later that year, um, I was in the tournament in Stuttgart, where both where Agassi was playing, and by that time, Steffi Graf had retired. And then suddenly, a rumor goes around that Agassi is practicing with Steffi Graf on the centre court. And sure enough, that's what's happening. And that was the start of their burgeoning relationship. Well, I'd forgotten that he'd been pursuing her for years. <laughs> and she well, they, they, they just both wasn't having any of Wimbledon. it. And uh, yeah, they, they had the dance at Wimbledon or something. Mm. And he was, uh, he was besotted. Um, mm. <laughs> so there we are. I, th- I ah, think lovely. even earlier that year, before he won the French, he'd had another go. Um, and she just said, in fact, he called her hotel. They were at a tournament together. He called her hotel room. Um, and she was like, what are you doing? I'm here with my boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Worked out in the end. That's how all great love stories start, right? Two kids and 22 (laughs) years later. All's well, it ends well. Um, and somebody who covered the Agassi career from pretty much start to finish is our good friend from the New York Times, Chris Clary. Let's uh, get a sense of what he witnessed that particular fortnight. Just another Andre-like moment in that, you know, you where you least expected him, you had to expect him in some ways. And that wasn't always the case, obviously. He had a lot more consistency in this latter half of his career, for sure, or the latter third of his career, where you could really count on him to deliver a lot of times. But at that stage... In the 90s, it was a different deal. And I think I think he, uh, well, he, when he had that chance to be liberated and got locked in, he was such an incredible ball striker. And I think things broke his way that way. Uh, in that draw, he uh, he became so hard to stop. And he played a very unconventional clay court style. I mean, he was really, even though he had great success on the surface over the years, David, he didn't wasn't a great slider. He hugged tight to the baseline, caught the ball early. I guess you could look at someone like, like Guga, um, who won three times, and he sort of changed the dynamic of how clay court tennis was played with his aggressive baseline style. But Andre was much more compact and really, a, even though he played on clay, looked more like a hardcore player to me. So it was it was surprising all around, and, and just such a wonderful. I remember the look on his face when he won. It was just really it was still who me, you know. Even though that obviously that final against Medvedev was so topsy turvy anyway, but he, um, my my real memory of that is is the emotion it stirred in him and. And how much he just—it uh, seemed like he just himself didn't expect it. No, I think that's that's exactly right, Chris. And uh, yeah, it will be forever remembered, won't it? Ninety-nine for both of those finals that we've brought to you over the last uh, couple of days here on Roland Garros relived. Really, really special memories. So. Um, we have a couple of other things we wanted to mention um, at the end of this particular show. You may remember that we were crowdfunded at the start of this year, which has enabled us to produce all the shows that we've been putting out over the last uh, couple of months. Um, we were going to have pet mascots for each Grand Slam. You may remember we had Crumble at the Australian Open. Who can forget Crumble? Well, for the French Open, Dawn, one of our listeners in Texas, had introduced us to her beautiful dog, Star and nominated her to be our mascot for Roland Garros. Very sadly, Star hadn't been well and passed away during the Australian Open, but we asked Dawn if we could honour Star by taking by talking about her on this podcast, and she said yes. Catherine, tell us about Star. 
Oh, well, we were first introduced to uh, to Star by um, Dawn sending through a, a photo of her. She she was a a corgi retriever cross, which is a cross I've never heard of before, and it's a it's definitely a cross that works on the basis of the photos. The 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 first photo we saw of saw of Star, she was wearing a little um. What are the caps? Mortarboard. Mortarboard. She's wearing a little doggy mortarboard. <laughs> Uh, which is just the best thing ever. She um, star rescued her when she was two years old, um, and uh, she became part of the family instantly. Huge part of the family, and she she was trained up by Dawn to be um, a certified service dog who worked with children with autism, which is just an amazing thing. I've seen a little bit of that actually. Um, dogs that that work with, um, well, lots of different types of uh, children in need, dogs that work with children with reading difficulties. It's an amazing, amazing thing. There is nothing seemingly that dogs can't do to to help in the world. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, it's desperately sad. We were so desperately sad for Dawn at the time that it happened, and I know it's been really tough for her. And she sounds like she was an absolutely wonderful dog. Um, and uh, we also appreciate Dawn um, uh, su- suggesting that we, as you as you did, David, point out that uh, that Star did pass away during the Australian Open, lest people think that there might be a uh, a tennis podcast mascot killer on the loose. Um, yeah, that there, <laughs> there, there isn't a jinx. We don't think there's a jinx. We hope there's not a jinx. No, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So start well, Dawn. We're thinking about you, and uh, and we're we're just delighted that we have have had chance to to see the pictures that you've been sending us of start. And uh, thank you very much for your support. We also wanted to um, mention June because. Alistair Isles has been in touch and his mum, June, is apparently a big fan of the show. Uh, she hasn't been very well recently. She won- She has been in lockdown like so many of us, of us has been and she hasn't been well at the same time. Um, I think she broke a leg. Um, so get well soon, June, is what we want to say. Oh, and it rhymes. Yeah, <laughs> well, which has all been planned out. Yeah, get well soon, June. Yeah, yeah, hope you're feeling better. Yeah, indeed, and I hope all of you are feeling okay out there and um, and enjoying these shows that we're that we're bringing you each day. We'll continue to do so over the second week of Roland Garros and all the way through Wimbledon. Um, we're we're loving putting them together. After every one of these, we we just feel really uplifted. It's it feels like a great learning experience for us to delve into the past of the sport and, in my case, relive my life it's like writing an autobiography <laughs> on in podcast form um and, and it's an absolute thrill it really is a, a treat to do so so thank you for, for your support as always if you are enjoying them do let everybody you know uh your friends your family uh, know about the podcast and see if they might fancy having a listen as well but for now that's it for us and we'll be back with you again tomorrow what we what we bring in tomorrow we are doing jennifer capriati 2001 against Kim Clijsters. Oh, awesome. Can't yeah. wait for that. Right. We're in the, nor- we're in the noughties, though. Yeah. Catherine's early hairstyles. 
being covered here on the tennis podcast the jennifer capriati bunches is that right no that was when she first broke on the scene as a 14 year old i was how old was i 2001 was not a a good (laughs) time for me appearance wise we'll skim over that (laughs) thank you have some (laughs) i haven't (laughs) that's all right um thank you very much for your company all and we'll see you tomorrow 